CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're doing something a little bit different on our show today. As all of you who listen know, we typically talk to uh, analysts and journalists from around the state uh, who uh, comment on how the campaigns are operating, how we see things unfolding in this election year. Um, But today and one day next week, we are going to be talking to insiders for uh, both the Abrams campaign and the Kemp campaign to uh, hear what they have to say about how they see the race for governor unfolding, strategies for the final weeks of the race, and more. So we're going to start today uh, with Lauren Growargo, who is a campaign manager for Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor. Lauren Growargo is a seasoned political consultant who's worked on campaigns in other states. But when she arrived in Georgia, she formed a partnership with Stacey Abrams' that uh, has been a pretty powerful force in uh, politics in this state. Uh, She became the CEO of Fair Fight, the organization that she founded with Stacey Abrams. She worked, of course, closely on the campaign in 2018, is running the campaign this time around. And so we'll talk to Lauren in just a minute. And uh, Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist, whose column, Political Insider, you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, and who oversees the Jolt, which is at AJC.com every day, has uh, very graciously agreed to join us out of sequence. uh, Because, uh, Patricia, we realize that people like me and Kevin Riley, who will be on the show a little bit later, we're not out on the trail the way you are. And so we thought it was important we have you join us to uh, share your uh, thoughts and ask your questions of Lauren. So thanks, Patricia, for being here. Oh, Bill, thank you so much for having me. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you and Lauren today. So the chance to talk to the Abrams campaign manager for 30 minutes, just with you and me, is I, would, I wouldn't miss it. So thank you for inviting <laughs> me and thanks, Lauren, for joining us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Lauren, Lauren, we really are glad you're here. Um, so let me start uh, by pointing out that... Um, we don't talk about polling on this show very often, at least not in a specific way. We've sort of said there's been a general arc in which uh, the uh, Kemp campaign appears to have a, a, an edge of a couple points here and there in some of the polling. Uh, I will tell you that we ended the show yesterday by saying anybody who thinks that you can count Stacey Abrams out just because of a few poll numbers and some articles which have suggested that the momentum in the campaign isn't what it was in 2018, doesn't understand politics in Georgia uh, today. So having said that, uh, we see today two new polls, Quinnipiac and a poll from an organization called Echelon, which put it as a dead heat. That said, Lauren, I want to start by just giving you a very open opportunity to tell us what do you think about where the race stands today? What's the dynamic? Where are you headed in the weeks ahead? 
Well, thank you so much, Bill, for having me. It's great to be with you as well, Patricia. And so, look, the polling this week shows what we've known, which is the race is tied. We are in a 50-50 state, and uh, we're in a polarized state. We're in a state that Democrats can win. And that is absolutely the case. And I've actually been laughing a fair amount in the past couple of weeks because every two years now for some time, going back to 2016 very acutely, there's been a narrative that, oh, George is not competitive, et cetera, et cetera. I'll, either, I'll go back to 2016. We, may, we were making the case then that we should have had a presidential battleground state, and we saw our neighbors over to the Northeast in North Carolina get a huge investment from the presidential Georgia get next to nothing and the outcome being the same. Georgia has been competitive for some time. We and many folks have been working at that. And here we are today with a 50-50 state. So the polls are going to, you know, move around a little bit here and there. But bottom line, I would remind your listeners that, of course, it feels different than four years ago. Trump was in the White House four years ago. We had a different kind of energy, a different kind of moment in our country. And um, so things are going to feel different. Things are going to look different. We have an incumbent governor who cannot get the 50% while Democrats have the White House in a midterm year, where usually the structural historical advantage is for the opposing party. We have a very weak incumbent governor um, when you just look at the facts on the polling. And, you know, just to be blunt, part of the other thing we look at in the polling is how is the president doing? And um, the president um, overall has, and the polling and favorabilities are moving in the right direction. They're moving more positively. But I would just say, as we look at the sort of macro situation of a Midterm year when Democrats have the White House and an incumbent governor who's been giving away federal money that he opposed left and right. He can't get above 50. We have the race in a dead heat. And um, even with even with some of the um, larger Democratic presidential approval struggling. So this is a competitive race. Look, Lauren, let me just ask you one more question, regardless of what polling numbers data show us. Um, there's another narrative that you're well aware of that is developed, and that is. Uh, Maya King in the New York Times wrote a big piece last week that got a lot of buzz. She was on the show talking about it yesterday. It's been written about in uh, the AJC and other publications, which is that your campaign so far has not been able to energize uh, uh, black voters in the way you did it uh, four years ago, particularly black men. And so it's created this impression somehow that uh, maybe your campaign just isn't what it was and it is not creating an excitement that you had four years ago. Just respond to that, if you would. Well, it's just false and, and for, on a variety of fronts. A couple of disgruntled you know, consultants who aren't getting contracts, you know, go to the New York Times is not really a story in my view. What is the story is what's actually happening in the electorate. I would remind folks that we are in get out the vote now. August 22nd in Georgia is the period of time that opened up where Georgians can request a mail ballot. So we are now uh, a couple weeks into that period. And so this is not speculative. We have huge energy. This looks different. Again, we don't have, you know, an evil man in the White House. We have um, an uh, really far-right governor who's passed abortion bans and other unpopular legislation. And you don't have to take my word for it. We have three times the number of Georgians have requested mail ballots over the same exact period four years ago. And they are disproportionately female. They are disproportionately Democratic. And it's the indications that we have an energized electorate, which looks different in a year 
um, that it did four years ago. But that's those are the facts. And so we're building the electorate we're going to need to win. Patricia, jump Lauren, in. let me ask you. Oh, sure. I'll ask you a follow up question on that. Our own polling showed Abrams polling at about 80 percent with black voters. Now, again, polling, I think we are confident in our polling, um, but obviously that was some time ago. Um, but I want to ask you, does your own internal data show any weakness among black voters? Um, and what are y'all doing specifically with black voters? Because I know Abrams has been out really focusing events on black men in particular. Absolutely. So one of the things we've seen in, in the research here and around the country is what I would describe as softness with black voters. And it's it in some of the research here in Georgia. And we have always viewed, and we talked about this a lot four years ago, we always have viewed all of our voters and all of our potential voters as persuasion voters. The idea that we need to actually be as intellectually curious about the very large pool of black voters who live in every part of our state, just like typically in democratic politics, white suburban college-educated women get a lot of attention. So we view black voters as persuasion voters, right? And in an environment where there is um, a lot of struggles in our party that are very out in front street, right? They're not saying anything that people don't know. When you look at Biden's approvals and the entire conversation is that black voters like white voters, like suburban voters, like Latino voters, want to know what the plan is to deliver for their families. And there is you know, frustration on that. And so we believe that um, through all of our research, there's not a cool problem with black voters, but we have to work for their votes, just like we need to work for everybody else's votes. And so we invest resources in polling and focus groups and um, lots of outreach and lots of direct voter contact and mail programs and digital to black men, black women, young black voters. You know, I, I, you know, I think the folks in this panel understand, but sometimes what gets lost in some of the national media that black voters are a very large and powerful force in Georgia. In all battleground states, we have the largest share of our voters are African-American, much more than our northern battleground states. And so we have never taken those voters for granted. We are working our tails off for them, just like we're working our tails off for white women and white men and Latinos and API voters. We are running scared. We are trying to unseat an incumbent. And we are working to earn those votes. And as we do that work, what we can see is that we are going to get those support levels that we need. Because when you look at it at the end of the day, both Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams are very strong with black voters. And we know that when we do the work, um, we will get that work back out. Uh, we will get that support back in return. But we're not taking anybody for granted in this, Patricia. And I know you and I have spoken about this. Um, talk a little bit about the issue of abortion. We have seen that become a huge focal point for Democratic campaigns. But I'm also hearing it, of course, from women out at events um, who I'm talking to. What role do you see abortion playing in this contest with Brian Kemp? And how do y'all activate voters around that issue? I mean, this is just a huge issue. Brian Kemp's abortion ban is such an extreme ban. So, Bill, I hope you'll you'll bear with me. I just want to be really plain about what this is, because part of what's going on is some of the things that women talk about privately are now out front 
and we've done just a number of focus groups. And then Patricia, same as you, I get, I get pulled, physically pulled, like my elbow pulled by women at every single event I go to. When you have an abortion ban at six weeks and there's a, the way the personhood provision and the life of the mother exceptions have been written, you have to prove that your miscarriage is not an elective abortion. When you have to have a police report to access an abortion after rape or incest, let's break down what that actually means. About one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. So when you talk to real women (laughs) and men who love them, everybody has a miscarriage story, right? And some of them look, some of them manifest like an elective abortion. And these are such common experiences that when you think about women and doctors potentially being investigated for an abortion for a miscarriage, you're talking about everybody. Number two, the statistics on sexual assault. Everybody knows they themselves are no women who have been sexually assaulted. These are just normal things that women talk to each other about. And so when you look at something, you know, the statistics are something like 20, 25% of women have been raped or had there's been an attempted rape. So not all of those rapes end in an unwanted pregnancy, but it's so common. So I think what tempts teens in this really extreme ban has missed is that we have, quote, pro-life women, Republican women, who move away from Kemp on this issue because of its extremism. We have internal research that says 80% of Georgians across the board are extremely concerned about what this means for for women who have miscarriages potentially being investigated. And this is not speculative, right? We have prosecutors on the record saying that they're going to have to investigate and look into these things. We have women who've been denied ulcer medication in Georgia because those same medications could induce an abortion. This is not speculative. This is real. This is here. And I can tell you, one of the things that we don't talk about, you know, Bill, you talk about not talking about the polls. One of the things we don't talk about out loud in public is focus groups, which we have done over 15. And as we were really trying to understand this bill, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share an insider story for you, Bill. Make, you know, give, you, give you that insider you're looking for. In, I believe it was August, we just happened to have two nights in a row the following focus groups. And I'd never done them personally as an operative. I'd never done them back-to-back on consecutive nights. One night we had infrequent voting young black women. And the next night we had white suburban college-educated women who had mixed partisan voting history. So they had mainly been voting for federal Dems recently, but they had some previous recent Republican vote history. It was in that time that Roe had been overturned, but before the 11th Circuit had lifted the stay and that Kent's abortion ban was in effect. It was in that period where we were really trying to understand what was going on with this. Our moderators in both groups were the ones who informed all of these very different women about the ban. None of the women knew about it. These very different groups of women both had the same reactions of just unbelievable outrage and like, wait, what? You don't even know you're pregnant. Wait, what? Very different women in our coalition 
And and you know what's happened, Bill, and I say this because you're a man, and I think a lot of men are making decisions in the camp campaign. They All the women start looking at each other in the room and start engaging with each other and sidebarring about their miscarriage or their daughter's miscarriage. Or, you know what I mean? So it, it sparks a conversation amongst women that I think the very male camp campaign honestly has no access to. And it's so disqualifying. It's so emotional. It's so powerful. And the last thing I'll say before I pass it back to you, Bill, it's why we're seeing 60 percent of the vote by mail requesters to date are women. In Georgia, we would expect that number to be 55 percent. So we are seeing the beginning of this, what we've seen in special elections around the country. It is motivating. It is powerful. And it is going to cause Kemp to lose reelection. Well, you just I think you just spoke to the question I was going to ask, which was going to be as outra- as outraged as many women uh, may be over uh, uh, the, the new law here. Are they going to turn out to the polls? Is it the animating factor that will get them to turn out uh, and, and vote? And to some extent, that's going to be up to your organization and how you do your GOTV uh, efforts. Right. Absolutely. Um, we believe on a couple issues. Kemp's extremism is so disqualifying on what he has done on guns, what he has done on abortion, and how this all ties together with his extremism. So on proactively passing horrible and dangerous gun laws and on abortion combined with his lack of leadership on healthcare, allowing now we're six hospitals closing on his watch the refusal to expand Medicaid, and then all of these things come together. How do they come together? Again, this is just real talk, Bill. You talk to women in Georgia, from South Georgia to here, wealthy women, poor women, they can't get in to an OBGYN now. If you don't already have yourself established, we have an OBGYN shortage. We have a doctor of shortage crisis. We have a nurse shortage crisis. And we have hospitals closing. All of these things are coming together, not only to impact people's lives, but they are hurting our economy. All right. Let me let me turn to another uh, subject. Um, as you well know, uh, one of the themes that has been used in advertising uh, for uh, Brian Kemp uh, it speaks to his incumbency during the pandemic. Uh, and the, they make the claim in the spot that it, and Kemp does on the campaign trail that his leadership in getting the state back open uh, saved our economy. Uh, it made the state a better uh, uh, place during the pandemic. And, of course, what it really those commercials do is attack uh, Stacey Abrams uh, w- w- using quotes of her saying it's too soon to reopen. We shouldn't be reopening. And, and I'm just curious about something. I don't know to what extent that issue, his what he would say is his success in managing the pandemic in Georgia and coming out of it with economic success, is resonating with voters out there. But I do wonder why the campaign, your campaign, apparently hasn't done much to respond to that. We lost 38,000 Georgians. 38,000 people died uh, in Georgia as a result of the pandemic, the fact that there was no statewide mask mandate or other statewide restrictions that might have mitigated the virus. And I'm not quite sure why that's not an issue that at least I've heard your campaign uh, take up at all. Yeah, I, this is a really important topic. In fact, um, on that piece, um, the, the over 30,000 folks who have died, the hospital closure, 
um, you know, one in 100 folks in Hancock County died. You know, these there are some eye-popping statistics, and there's been um, no response. So we actually have put out a digital ad on this exact topic. Uh, and as we think about Kemp's closing argument, which is a major medical facility shuttering its doors and bringing us only one level one trauma center left in our metropolitan area, um, you know, all of these healthcare pieces come together in a, in a sort of crescendo of hurting our economy, people losing jobs in healthcare when we already have a shortage, women needing to, you know, go into sepsis before they can get an exception for life of the mother um, in an abortion bill, and, you know, no help, no relief from this governor. And so his closing argument on uh, this hospital closing on November 1st ties in all of, into all of this bill, which is that we have a governor whose extremism and lack of care for his citizens is not only hurting people and their lives, it's hurting our livelihoods and our ability to start and grow our businesses when we have such an unmitigated health care crisis in our state. Patricia? Lauren, um uh, Lauren, one of the one of the ads and messages that the Kemp campaign feels is its strongest attack on Abrams is um, her record on not her record on public safety, but what she has said, what she said specifically in that CNN interview about defunding the police. Um, the ad uh, has a CNN anchor pushing her to say, "So you would defund the police?" And so there's a, a short clip where Abrams says, "Well, yes, but you know," and then. Obviously, the conversation was longer, um, uh, and later she says uh, we ha- there has to be a balance. I don't think I think that's a false choice, et cetera. Um, but I've heard from Democrats outside of Atlanta who have seen that ad and don't know where Abrams stands on public safety and this this kind of quote defunding the police. What did what did she say fully in that interview, and where does she stand on public safety and crime that is not just in Atlanta, but we're we're seeing it throughout the state, and is is of a concern for Georgians? Absolutely, this is a huge topic. Georgians don't feel safe, and gun violence has skyrocketed during the Kemp administration. In fact, we are at a dark time. Right now, the top killer of Georgia's kids is, is gun violence, and that is, a, that is a new statistic. And like you said, it's not just Metro Atlanta. It's statewide. Sadly, Albany and parts of South Georgia are seeing an unbelievable epidemic. And if you talk to law enforcement, they will tell you that the gun laws and the, the permitless carry, criminal carry bill um, has created and worsened our gun environment and climate, and they strongly oppose it. Our, our position, Stacey's position, has been clear. Go back and run the tape on the 2018 debate with Brian Kemp, where she talked about how local law enforcement, corrections officers, and others deserve a right. Part of what we have in our state is we have public safety officers, public safety officials, teachers, all of our frontline workers do not make a living wage. And there has been no systemic approach to that problem. So we were loud and proud to talk about raises for law enforcement in 2018 to give them the support they need, which not only is a living wage, they don't have to work private security jobs and be working around the clock and being away from their family to put together a living, and also criminal justice reform. One of the most devastating impacts of the Kemp administration is he stopped what Nathan Deal had begun in our state, which was a unbelievably robust and thoughtful plan to move us out of incarcerating people, um, wasting our tax dollars, and the amount of recidivism going on. 
Nathan Deal was a national leader in both parties on really dealing with criminal justice reform in a way that was both humane and better for our economy. Kemp stopped all of that. Stacey will restart that. And we'll look at how do we have criminal justice reform, how do we support law enforcement in a real way, and how do we actually tackle these issues of violence in our communities. Our correction system is broken. We have juvenile corrections officers who are paid poverty wages. There's like a 90% turnover. We need to tackle this, and that's what our plan is. And the last thing I'll say is go to stacyabrams.com slash policy. We actually have a thoughtful approach to bring these stakeholders together prosecutors, law enforcement, advocates, formerly incarcerated, to actually tackle these issues that are very real of both safety and justice, go to Brian Kemp's website. What does he say? You know, he sticks a gun in a child's face on TV and thinks that's cute and says he's going to round people up in his truck. He does not have a serious approach here. Well, let's be, I, I do want to be clear that we're talking now about an ad from 2018. I understand why you would call it relevant today, but let's say he's not running that ad uh, in 2022. Um, so here's the question. I, I want to, can we talk for a few more minutes, Lauren? You okay on time? Okay. Um, the, the big question, I think, about, about crime and public safety, about crime and guns, is which one trumps which. In other words, it does feel as if people may be more animated to vote around the issue of escalating crime than proliferation of guns. Proliferation of guns, unless you can connect it in a very visceral and direct way to crime, uh, seems like a harder sell, Lauren. Well, I can tell you this. Again, let's just like bring it down to real talk. The Uvalde, Uvalde massacre in Texas in school happened the last week of public school in Georgia. Those of us who are part of the school system, as in their parents are married to teachers, I happen to be both, <laughs> both a parent of a public school kid and married to a teacher, all the parent networks, all the teacher networks, it was the cliffhanger at the end of the school year, right? And then we, had, we just had, what, two, three weeks ago, a mass shooting in Midtown in the middle of the day, one of whose victims' life was saved at AMC, right? So the drumbeat of gun violence in our communities is steady and constant and happening in the public's parking lot in Decatur and happening in low-income parts of South Georgia. And so going back to that focus group example, Bill, one of the other great things about that example is those young black women, they carry weapons. They do not feel safe in our state. And they see themselves as responsible gun owners. And they think what Kemp has done is reckless and irresponsible and is part and parcel to the problems in crime. Here's the deal. This is on Brian Kemp. Ask his people next week. He said he was going to be Mr. Law and Order. He was going to fix crime. Crime has gotten worse. There are more guns in our streets, and our gun culture is out of control. And we hear about it from voters in all of our research. Okay. okay. I, 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 this conversation is really uh, valuable, I think. And, and I want to call an audible here. If you, Lauren, and you, Patricia, are open to this, um, we had initially said we were going to uh, let uh, Lauren go on to other things right about now. <laughs> I, I, I'd sort of like I'd sort of like to keep the conversation going for a few more minutes. And actually, I'd like to bring Kevin Riley in because I think Kevin uh, would be valuable at this part of the conversation too. So. Are you okay with that, Lauren, Patricia? Are you both well Bill, uh, willing to stay on for a while? <laughs> All right, so let, let's get, let's do this. Chase McGee, let's take our first break. And when we come back, more with Lauren Grow Wargo. 
pointing out, by the way, that next week it'll be the Kemp campaign's turn to do the same thing we're doing today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy and I are going to continue our conversation with uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager, Lauren Wargo, and we're joined by the boss himself, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, I'm really glad that you can uh, join us at this point in the conversation. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to ask a question in a minute. But, Patricia, I want to ask you one, and then Lauren's going to probably want to respond to this. When we think back to the 2018 race, the Abrams campaign was laser-focused on a couple of major issues, it strikes me expanding Medicaid for all, and election integrity. Those were like the really strongest uh, elements of their campaign. I'm having a little more difficult time, and maybe you as a reporter who's covered this race can help me with this. See, it, it feels that this time there are an awful lot of issues out there and that the approach is a little bit less focused. We're hearing, of course, about Medicaid, especially in the context now of, of Grady. Um, election integrity seems to have fallen a little bit by the wayside, but it, it fe- abortion uh, is there, uh, guns and violence. I, I, I wonder if the campaign is focused in the same way that it was uh, four years ago. From your point of view as a reporter, I guess the the nicest way to say it is that the Abrams campaign maybe has an embarrassment of riches in terms of policy ideas and concepts. Um, It does make it hard for um, reporters to cover each in depth because there are, if you go to an Abrams campaign, there are dozens, dozens of ideas, concepts, policy prescriptions from uh, legalizing gambling to free technical college to additions to the Hope Scholarship, of course, to gun violence, abortion, health care, Medicaid expansion, um, SB 202, expanding voting rights. I mean, it is literally, it is just, it's not literally, it's not literal, it's figuratively just a laundry list of ideas. Um, I think that helps the campaign to micro-target voters for whom that is their, those are their top issues. Um, it may make it harder to overall have a a single message to glom onto, it feels to me like it's changing a little bit with abortion. And that is driven by events. And that is kind of driven by this reality that the campaign finds itself in. But in terms of a tactical plan, Lauren would know better than I why they've taken that approach. It may just it may simply feel different from 2018 and not be different. But I would be interested in your in your insight, Lauren, on that. Lauren, and then let's get Kevin in. Sure. I'd say a couple of things. What, one of the big differences this year is we are trying to get a guy fired. And last time it was an open seat. And, and, and now we have a guy who his entire agenda 
has been giving away federal dollars as a patchwork quilt to put Band-Aids on problems and do tax relief and tax cuts for the wealthy and has no plan. So the, the contrast we are painting is we have a plan and we don't have to raise taxes and we can actually get cash in Georgian's pockets and invest in our communities without raising taxes. That is the basic distillation and that we will defend your rights and liberties up against this other guy who wants to strip your rights and liberties, be it your liberty to have healthcare choices for your uterus and your body, whether it is your liberty and freedom to vote, whether it is your freedom to marry. Somebody, uh, you know, he just recently said he thinks it'd be great if the Supreme Court took up marriage rights. He wants to pass RIFRA. So we have proof points underneath all of these. But I think, yeah, absolutely, it is different. Um, and absolutely, back to the previous question, it's black voters, white voters, brown voters, they want to know a plan. They are struggling. They are hurting. You know, Kemp's out here, like, throwing a little hundred bucks at teachers to buy supplies, but has nothing in his education plan around how we, how we fix the teacher shortage and pay a real living wage. I'm married to a teacher who's been teaching for 10 years in the public school system. Do you know she? So, you know, first of all, he doesn't think my marriage is real. You know she makes $55,000 a year. So these are real issues, and we are all in this for our kids and our families. This is not some, you know, gun-slinging, throw-people-in-our-pickup kind of game that the Kemp operation seems to have. This is about how do we actually get money in pockets, how do we actually invest in communities, stop the hospitals from closing, get real health care so that we can actually have an economy and a business climate where we can grow small businesses and actually serve our people. Uh, two quick details. Kemp's tax cuts <clears throat> have been across the board, as have the tax refunds and the teacher pay raises have been across the board as well to teacher pay raises. I just want to um, fact check that a little bit. Brian Kemp has done one-time cash infusion and has literally put an education plan on the website that neither addresses the salaries that are some of the lowest in the Southeast, nor addressed the teacher shortage. And number three, he is fixing the fact that our one of our two level one trauma centers, he is throwing ARP funds against it, which he called ARP funds, quote, a slap in the face of working Georgians and unacceptable. This guy cannot have it always. Either the Biden economy sucks or the Biden economy is great. Either these federal dollars are great or they are not. But he is not actually solving the systemic issues facing our state. Kevin Riley, why don't we get you into this conversation? Yeah, I feel like I'm sprinting along the uh, the tracks while trying to jump on a very fast-moving train here, Bill. So, um, <laughs> but um, so, Lauren, you know, this idea of investing in the state. I mean, uh, I know that you've just sort of touched on that, and uh, Stacey Abrams has talked about that. But be more specific. I mean, you know, I think the governor makes a strong case that we have these one-time uh, budget. Uh, opportunities with with the way the economy's gone with the federal money, and we should do nothing that creates an ongoing cost for the state. And I think that Stacey Abrams is arguing in this time of of, uh, largesse, we ought to make major investments in our state. So, I mean, convince me that she's doing something that's sustainable or wants to do something that's sustainable. Yeah. Look, we are in a larger generational moment with 
um, the funds available to our state and our budget surpluses. And um, at the same time, we have a school funding formula that has not been updated. At the same time, we have hospitals closing. And at the same time, um, we have corrections officers and others making poverty wages. So that's why we've laid out an actual plan with a budget on how we can do this using the governor's own projections on our economy and our future budget to do this without raising taxes. So if you literally scroll down to the bottom of our policy page on our website, we have posted a spreadsheet on how we can expand Medicaid, how we can fully fund our schools, how we can provide free technical college, how we can provide need-based aid, how we can get teachers an actual living wage, bump those starting salaries up, get average teacher pay competitive, all of this without raising taxes. And we're putting our money where our mouth is. So we've gone ahead, Kevin and all, and we've had Moody's take a look at our at our projections. We've had Mark Vandy, one of the top economists nationally, take a look. So I'll make a little bit of news here on Bill Nygut. We're about, they're about to release an independent analysis. They don't do this for money um, on our plan. So we had Alan Essig write it, who ran um, Georgia Budget and Policy Priorities, who knows our state budget well. We tapped other local economists, but we're going a step further. And we opened up all of our budget and plan to Moody's. And they agree with us. And they're, they will be publishing soon um, an independent analysis that shows we can do all of this without raising taxes. Georgians are in crisis. And, and I don't know that the governor understands it, but we do. Our, our folks are struggling. People are living paycheck to paycheck. Sure, they have jobs. They might have five jobs. We have got to do something here to make this the best state to live in and work in and raise a family. And we believe we can not only put cash in working people's pockets, we have a, we have a plan to put um, checks in the pockets of families who make under a quarter million dollars a year, as well as well, dig into these problems that are really hurting our families in the education and healthcare system. Well, Lauren, when is that Moody's uh, uh, report going to be out? I mean, let's not, don't imminently. tease us and then tell us it's not imminently. here. Imminently, yeah, no, no, imminently. It, and we will send it right over to Patricia and the AJC. This we take this stuff seriously, right? Well, we have... send it to us, too, to have learned. Oh, I'll send it to you, Bill. Don't worry. GPP will be on the top of the list. GPP will be on the top of the list. But this stuff, this stuff is serious. And, you know, uh, we're, we're going to show our math. We need to, right? And the, and the governor the governor has no plan. All right. I, I, I think, Lauren, you've been terrific in extending uh, your time on our show today. And I'm really grateful to you. Uh, for doing that. It's, it's been uh, uh, interesting and informative <laughs> to hear, hear you talk. And, and I do want to uh, point something out to our listeners. Uh, you're, you all, in fact, said you would be interested in doing this uh, on our show, which I thought was really wonderful. And you said you uh, welcomed the fact that the, that the governor's people would probably want an opportunity as well. So they'll get that opportunity uh, next week. But in the meantime, Lauren Growargo, thank you so much uh, for being with us on Political Rewind today. Um, take care. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been great. Take care. We'll, we'll be back in a minute with uh, Kevin Riley and Patricia Murphy. By the way, we're going to have a high-level official from the campaign campaign on the show. They chose next Wednesday, uh, so we'll uh, do this then. Um, so Kevin and Patricia, we could have kept talking with Lauren, but obviously she has points that she's making uh, in support of her campaign. And I, I think it's important to spend a few minutes with the two of you 
sort of uh, talking about what you heard, what you liked, what you wondered about. Kevin, what were your thoughts as you listened to the first part of that interview? Well, I, I wonder, and I'm really interested to know what Patricia thinks about about this because she's done such a great job um, uh, covering the, the the abortion issue in Georgia. They they really want that to be the issue. I mean, I think that Lauren couldn't have been much more clear about that. And my question is whether it is, whether it will be, because if it is. I think a lot of us believe that that puts Stacey Abrams in a position of strength. If, 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 you know, so many women in our state are animated over this and plan to go vote and um, believe that the direction of the state is wrong, that could be just a dynamic that changes everything. But is that true in the way that Lauren insisted that it is? What do you think, Patricia? So, I think that will be true for some voters. Um, It is the first time in nearly 50 years that women are going to the polls and the issue of abortion has not been settled at the Supreme Court and has been overturned at the Supreme Court level. And that is just so, it is such an unprecedented, unprecedented way for women to engage with the abortion issue, um, that it is not protected at the federal level through the Supreme Court. And it has been um, sent down to the states. And in many of these states, including Georgia, um, very restrictive laws have been passed in some cases uh, when I think the lawmakers didn't really think it would go into an effect. And so I think for for some women, this is an issue that's more than an issue on a ballot. It is a reality that they are still grappling with. Who makes these decisions for women? Who should make these decisions for women? Who in the heck is their state lawmaker? Did they vote yes or no? You know, I think women are scrambling to figure out what this means for them. Um, at the same time, the economy is also in an unprecedented situation, um, the highest inflation in 40 years. And I think women and men are scrambling to figure out what does that mean for them? Is this a like the last few months of the um, pandemic working itself through the economy or is this the new normal and is that sustainable and okay with the leadership in place and are the leaders doing what we want them to do so i don't think any campaign knows how the abortion issue in particular is going to affect them um it will affect the election will it will it change totally change who would win anyway i don't know um but there's no way that it cannot play a huge role in this election cycle you know, um, Kevin and Patricia, I'd love to get both of you on this. Um, obviously, the closing of the Atlanta Medical Center uh, certainly gives Stacey Abrams ammunition to talk about her belief that we have to expand Medicaid. Uh, all, the AMC officials say it wouldn't have saved the hospital, but of course, you know, what do we make of the Wellstar's words on that? They may be trying to uh, protect the governor a little bit and saying that we don't really know. Um, so that's a good issue for Stacey Abrams in some ways, Kevin. Um, but on the other hand, I think Kemp shows what the power of, of incumbency can mean in a situation like that. His office is able to quickly call together leaders uh, in the city, in the counties that oversee Grady, uh, Grady Hospital. He can come up with an immediate uh, infusion of federal money, federal money that Republicans had rejected uh, to put into Grady Hospital to expansion. And, and so in some ways, it, it gives him this showcase for talking about the power of in, 
incumbency, I think. Um, and I wonder how that weighs against Abrams' uh, uh, you know, uh, expansion of Medicaid as a, as a key issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen Brian Kemp brilliantly use the power of, of uh, incumbency throughout this campaign and throughout uh, this entire period. And I, I think the closing of Atlanta Medical Center is an example of, of what he can do, as, as is the case with all the federal money he's doling out. I mean, I know that the Abrams campaign keeps wanting to make the case that he was actually against that federal money, but that doesn't change the fact that he stands up at a news conference and delivers a whole bunch of good news to different organizations. It seems like almost every day he's doing something like that. And Patricia, you're welcome to weigh in on that, but I also, again, in terms of the power of the office, um, Kemp can, uh, can celebrate uh, the acquisition of Hyundai, the acquisition of Rivian. Um, there's an interesting development in the Hyundai plant that we could talk about for a minute, but nevertheless, those are economic development announcements that once again seem to accrue to his advantage as a guy who's gotten things done as governor, yes? Yes, and, you know, voters don't have to guess what it would be like for Brian Kemp to be governor. They know, and it is much harder for somebody who's not the sitting governor to say, trust me, I'm going to be better than this guy, and I, and I can do the job, and you're going to like what happens afterward. It's, a, it's just a lot more work to convince people to fire somebody than to just choose between the two. And for Kemp, he and his team have worked very hard to have a good message for both the primary that he won and the general election. So those tax cuts were across the board that he signed, and the, te- the tax refunds were across the board. And the teacher pay raises and the law enforcement pay raises, he and his team have made sure that they have a record to go back to a general election um, electorate and audience to also say, um, I've done all of this. And on top of that, his huge fight with Donald Trump, I do think has inoculated him from more moderate voters' concerns that there's this sort of wacky pack of Republicans, and he's one of them. You know, he he created an independent brand for himself almost by accident, but just by doing the job he was in. And I, I think that helps him a lot right now as well. Um, on the other hand, Kevin, uh, as the editor of a major newspaper, you are well aware of how the stories that appear in the news can shape thinking about uh, many issues, including political campaigns. And the number of stories that have appeared, New York Times, Washington Post, your own paper, that have suggested that Abrams is struggling a bit more to uh, build the same coalition of voters that she had in 2018, at least creates an impression out there of a lack of momentum. Now, Lauren tried to address that and claims that those that it's not true, that the momentum is there and you can see it in terms of applications for absentee ballots. But that does leave an impression, I think, out there that the Abrams campaign, unfortunately, has to fight against as hard as they can. Well, as a practical matter, during that last campaign, uh, Stacey Abrams came across as sort of a force of nature. You know, she was uh, relatively new to the to the statewide audience and certainly to the nation. Um, she uh, ran a campaign that was 
unexpected. I mean, the way she went, uh, totally progressive, was against democratic norms in Georgia. And she was the new kid in town. And, and so all of that, you know, helped her and made her a better story. Now she's, I wouldn't say she's old news, but there aren't a lot of surprises in what you want to know about Stacey Abrams. There's not as much curiosity. There isn't, and I, I just think that that's a normal thing in the, the career of anyone who's high profile, whether they're playing on a baseball field or they're a politician. Patricia, what do you make of that? So, yeah, so voters know both of these candidates. They have already seen them both. They've seen them side by side. We've been through this before. Um, One piece is that we do have 1.6 million new voters since 2018, and that's about a fifth of the electorate who did not consider these two candidates the last time around. Um, And the second is that we just have different dynamics um, working for and against both candidates, Um, although the impressions of who they are are very well-baked. So we have that national environment that is much better for Republicans, particularly on the economy. And Brian Kemp's economic message, I think, tends to be stronger than most even other Republican governors. Um, But again, there's also that abortion issue that I think is going to really scramble the issue set for some voters, not all voters, but um, that is so unusual and unprecedented that the Abrams campaign is working very hard to, to take advantage of it. Uh, but, but before we leave, Patricia, I do think we should point out that this news that the White House has reached a tentative agreement on uh, to, to avert a rail strike, which could have crippled us in terms of supply chain, obviously, is another uh, victory for uh, President uh, Biden, who's had some big victories in the during the summer months. And his approval numbers are already moving up. Um, and it's, so it's possible that People on the Georgia ballot, Democrats on the Georgia ballot, including Abrams, may not be fighting quite the headwinds that it appeared they could be when Biden's approval numbers were in the 30s. Yes? Yes. Well, Biden is still underwater quite a bit. Yeah. Um, a, a rail strike would have tanked him. I was at a Herschel Walker event this week about farmers and agriculture, and the first question a farmer asked was, what are we going to do about this potential rail strike? It would have crippled their own agriculture businesses. So I put this in the crisis averted section for Joe Biden. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Kevin Riley, last uh, point real quickly. Uh, we said at the beginning, we don't spend a lot of time talking about polls on the show, but we sure do talk about your polls because we find them to be uh, very, very credible. I think your you're, uh, uh, folks are telling us um, on air that you've got a poll coming out pretty soon. Well, they're doing their job, you know, Bill, when they're promoting the paper and teasing people with what's coming. So I'm really glad to hear that, of course. Um, but, yeah, um, we, people should expect us to, to uh, stick with our polling, and uh, we work very hard at it. Kevin Riley, Patricia Murphy, thank you for joining me for a really fascinating conversation. As I said, next week, the Kemp campaign will have its turn uh, to talk with us about where they're headed in the last weeks of the election. We're out of time for today's show. Um, Join us again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.